Yes, you'll want to get out your outline. Have that to follow along. As you know, we are back in Corinthians. We're in the second part of 1 Corinthians 9 uh, today in this uh, wonderfully easy-to-understand passage uh, that we have. So, But if you would turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 27, the end of the chapter. Let's listen carefully as this is the Word of God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of what makes the greatness of the gospel, the power of the cross, the glory of Christ. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems and issues of our lives. We need to know whatever we struggle with as individuals, that the answer to those issues are found in Christ. And we need to know that whatever we struggle with as a church, that the answer to those issues are found in Christ as well. Your word takes us where we are and leads us back to Christ. It shows us how much we need him, and then it gives him to us. And so that's what we pray you would do, even by bringing this difficult part of Scripture into our lives this morning. Lead us to Jesus. Show us how much we need him, and then give him to us. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last summer... Uh, Joanne and I went to Utah on vacation, uh, mostly because we had never been to Utah before. And, uh, and we had a great time, and we did a bunch of stuff designed for people much younger than us. Um, but one day, we decided um, to go to Salt Lake City and tour the Mormon Temple Complex. And they have quite the arrangement of presentations and exhibits and videos and buildings And the buildings are quite impressive. Of course, you're not allowed in the temple itself, but they have a nice 3D model of it to show you. And uh, since we had signed up in advance, uh, we had our own set of tour guides, two very polite young women, to show us around. Now, it quickly became obvious uh, 
that the tour was really designed to convince us to become Mormons. They followed a carefully choreographed script on their iPads. They each had iPads to help uh, with the tour. And the purpose of the tour to show us that our lives would be so much better if we became Mormons. And after a while, it became clear that the whole point of the tour was to get us to become like them. And they weren't shy about letting us know that they were more healthy, more moral, and had better families than we did. And all this was possible because they had special knowledge that we didn't have. And it turned out into something of a a hard sell because in their thinking, there couldn't possibly be anything better than becoming just like them. Furthermore, it also became obvious, at least to me, that they were pretty condescending about the whole thing. It was as if we were the poor pitiful pagans and they were there to show us the light and set us on the right path. And all in all, I felt like they were talking down to us. And quite honestly, I found it pretty offensive. And at one point, one of the women quoted from James 1 about wisdom and claimed that that passage was talking about the special knowledge that only Mormons had. And so I responded that actually, uh, James himself describes that wisdom later on in chapter 3. And it has nothing to do with having special knowledge that others don't have, but it actually says the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere all things that are available to any follower of Christ. And to that she said, Sir, I perceive that you are familiar with the Bible. (laughs) I was found out. (laughs) And she went to press the little help button in the corner of her iPad that apparently summons reinforcements, some version of backup elders to come set us straight. And I stopped her and I I said, you know, look, I didn't come here to debate, just to learn. I don't want to cause a fuss, but you can't use that verse that way. Just one example to show sort of how they thought that since we didn't have the special knowledge that only they had, that we were ignorant and only they could help us. If only we became like them. And if only we knew what they knew. As I said, it was all pretty condescending and offensive. But later on, as Joanne and I uh, were talking about the whole experience, and it was interesting, we went to one of their restaurants, and they're not allowed to drink caffeine or soda, but they didn't have any problem serving it to me. Um, And we were talking about the whole thing, and we realized there's probably a lot of people out there who feel exactly the same way about Christians. They've probably heard or at least had implied, if only you became like us. If only you knew what we know. The issue here is that you need 
to become like us. And so they think that Christians are pretty condescending and offensive. And they're partially right, because some Christians are pretty condescending and offensive. But is that what the Bible teaches us about sharing Christ with others? Should it be our goal that others become just like us? Actually, no. The Bible teaches that our goal should be that others become like Jesus. And so the goal for others is the same as the goal for myself, same as the goal for you, being like Jesus. And should it be our goal that others have the same knowledge, knowledge of the Bible, knowledge of uh, doctrine that we have? And again, no. The Bible teaches the knowledge that we should pursue is the knowledge of Christ. After all, 2 Peter 3.18, which is one of the theme verses for our church, teaches us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You can respond when it's okay. Um, now, the knowledge of Christ does come from the scriptures and it does come from understanding theology, but knowing those are not the end goal. Knowing Christ is the end goal. So how do we do all this without being condescending, without being offensive, without being overly legalistic, without being like the Mormons? Well, that's what our passage today is all about. What does it mean to do things for the sake of the gospel? And that brings us to 1 Corinthians 9 and the who of the gospel, the who. This is the most important and most commonly used biblical text to defend the concept of contextualization. That's a big word. What does it mean? Let me explain. New missionaries often struggle to communicate God's word faithfully to other cultures, or at least they should. Because some cultures have seven primary colors. Others recognize four. Some only have the idea of shiny and dull. And given those realities, how would you translate Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool for a culture that doesn't have scarlet, white, red, snow, or wool. Which best describes Jesus walking on the water in Zulu, which has 120 words for walking? The people of Madagascar distinguish over 200 kinds of noises and recognize over 100 colors. And we simply have to acknowledge that faithfully rendering God's word in another culture is not an easy task. Preachers and missionaries have to constantly strive to communicate the gospel so their hearers can understand and embrace Christ for salvation. Effective gospel communicators take into consideration their cultural context, especially when preaching to unreached or unchurched folks. Simply put, contextualization means that I adapt to the culture 
so that they're able to understand the gospel. And for the Apostle Paul, that's a necessity. If you remember, Paul is a Hellenistic Jew. That means he grew up in a Greek environment, but he's Jewish. He was working in a cross-cultural setting in Corinth. Paul is what today we would call a third-culture kid. Okay, he's, you know, American, growing up in another culture, and then he comes back here and realizes he didn't fit in the culture he grew up in, and he comes back to America and doesn't fit here. And so we've coined this name, third culture kid. It would apply to Paul. He grew up in the Greek culture of Tarsus in modern-day Turkey, but he grew up there as a Jew. He trained in Jerusalem as a rabbi and a Pharisee at a foot in both worlds. And Corinth itself is, if you remember, is this really immoral and idolatrous place. And the church there would face issues that the church back in Jerusalem wouldn't even imagine. And so Paul had to be adaptable in order to minister in these different places and among these very different people. So what did he do? It would have been very easy for him to say, you should become like me. But he doesn't say that, does he? What does he say, starting at verse 20? To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, now speaking about Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Paul was a Jew. The Jews were God's chosen people. If any culture had the right to consider itself more godly than all the others, it's the Jewish culture. And Paul certainly had a right to maintain his Jewish heritage. It's the same time Paul had been set free from the burden of the law. He was certainly free from the rabbinic hedge that had been built around the law. He had a right to ignore all of the endless extra-biblical rules and regulations of the Pharisees. And yet with the Jews, he acted like a Jew. And with the Gentiles, he acted like a Gentile. And with the weak, in this case, people with lots of scruples and hang-ups and personal rules, and he lived within all their scruples and hang-ups and personal rules. He became all things to all people by all means that he might save some. He identified with the people he was trying to reach. He adapted his life and his lifestyle to theirs and anything that might block them from hearing the gospel. He valued the gospel more than his own rights, more than his own comfort, and more than his own culture. He didn't demand that they become like him, but rather he became like them. He became a Jew. Verse 20. And if you think about it, you know, when it comes to Jewish credentials, uh, Paul's are impeccable. He writes in Philippians 3, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul has the pedigree. <coughs> Excuse me. 
calls a Christian. He's in union with Christ. And according to Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. But when approaching Jews to preach Christ to them, Paul lived as one under the law to win those under the law. He was very careful about what he ate. He respected Jewish traditions and customs so as not to put obstacles in the way of his Jewish hearers who are considering the claims of Christ. He shows great respect (coughs) for Jewish customs to remove objections and establish common ground uh, with his people. As one writer put it, Paul asked Jews not so much to give up the practice of the law as their confidence in it that their trust must be in Christ. So even though Paul is free from the law, he's perfectly willing to live as a Jew, as if under the law, in order to lead a Jew to Christ. But he's not always with the Jews. Sometimes he's with Gentiles. And when he's with Gentiles, Paul became a Gentile. Verse 21, he's willing to live as a Gentile. As he did with the Jews, he met the Gentiles on their own ground. When Paul says he becomes as one um, uh, who's outside of the law, he doesn't mean he's willing to break the law when the Gentiles break the law. It says, because I'm still under the law of Christ, the moral law of God. But he means in the presence of Gentiles, he doesn't live as a Jew. He lives as a Gentile. He eats Gentile food and so on. When Paul's with the Jews, he lives as a Jew. And when he's with the Gentiles, he lives as a Gentile. And he does so to avoid putting any obstacles in the way of preaching the gospel to either group of people. Now, what type of food we eat, Jewish food or Gentile food, shouldn't be an obstacle to people hearing about Christ. That actually connects us back to chapter 8, and the discussion there about what we eat becoming an obstacle to weaker brothers. And so now Paul says, just as I became a Jew to the Jews, and just as I became a Gentile to the Gentiles, sometimes it's necessary for me to become weak. Verse 22. Paul makes reference to living like a Jew or a Gentile. He does that for the express purpose of preaching the gospel to them eliminating obstacles to faith. But here, the weak are people who are already Christians. And Paul's already made plain his concern for these Christians whose consciences are burdened for things for which Christ has died, for which they shouldn't be struggling. But when among the weak, Paul acts as one who is weak, so as to win the weak and bring them to a position where they can become strong. As new Christians or weak Christians, Paul hopes to win them so their weak consciences would not so overcome them in such a way it would cause them to leave the church or leave the faith. Now, truth be told, we don't often have to face the issue of meat sacrificed to idols, which was the issue back in chapter 8 and will come up again in chapter 10. But a similar issue in our day and time is the issue of drinking alcohol. Now there's all sorts of health reasons for and against the use of alcohol. And I'm not getting into that this morning. The Bible doesn't forbid the use of alcohol. It tells us not to get drunk, but it never tells us not to drink. However, when you make no drinking a rule, and you look down on others who don't follow your rules, 
rule, you're the weaker brother. Ultimately, what you're communicating is that you can't handle your Christian freedom and you need a rule to control that area of your life. Now, you may have health reasons for not drinking, or maybe you just don't like it. That's fine. But when you don't want anyone else to do it, if it offends you, then you're the weaker brother. And now Paul says for these people, for the weak, he's going to bend over backwards to respect their scruples about meat sacrificed to idols, just as we should bend over backwards to respect somebody else's views on drinking so as not to offend them, not to put an obstacle in the way of their understanding the gospel, even if we don't agree with their rule. But his goal is not to leave them there in a weak position, but to strengthen them. And so the stronger to bear with the weak, to come alongside the weak with the goal of helping them move on to maturity and become strong. It's not about getting them to drink. It's about getting them to get rid of extra rules. Sorry. And ultimately the message to the church is, church, get over your desire for control and power and strength, and particularly when it comes to controlling and, uh, other people and having power over other people and having rules for other people. The weak need the gospel. And once they believe it, they need you to be gracious and to graciously shepherd them. And you'll have to give up some of your rights in order to serve them. We see the powerful ways Paul is willing to give up his rights and make sacrifices for the gospel. But before moving on, we have to remember that Paul fiercely defends the message itself, the gospel itself. One theologian put it this way, the message remains constant. It is the messenger who must swallow his pride, who must give up his rights, who must change his freedom into slavery. Woe be to those who trim the message so that they don't have to trim themselves. Paul never alters the gospel. He never waters down the call to discipleship. He never feared suffering for the gospel. For Paul, becoming like the Jews was not a means to fit in or be cool or to avoid suffering. He paid the price for being a messenger of the gospel. You can go to 2 Corinthians 4. It has a long list of every bad thing that ever happened to Paul. But too many Christians today hide behind these verses as an excuse to fit into the culture and avoid suffering, more often to avoid ridicule. And that's not the intent. Paul is showing the sacrifices he made to become like these uh, groups of people so that they would know Christ. And that brings us to the most important verses of the passage and the why of the gospel starting in verse 19 and then 22 and 23, says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. And then starting with the second half of verse 22, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So now Paul makes it uh, clear why he's so willing to become like the people he's trying to reach. He makes it clear what his goal is. He wants to win people. He wants to see them saved. 
The word that Paul uses is actually interesting. I found it fascinating um, when he talks about winning people. Because in the scriptures, most of the time it has financial implications and overtones. And considering the context at the beginning of the chapter, where Paul had refused payment, that could be what's sort of in the back of his mind as he uses it here. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 25. Remember the story of men who were entrusted with a sum of money, and one of them invested it and made a five-fold return on his investment. And the gain that he made is the word that Paul uses here for win. It's the word for profit. And I think Paul is saying something like this. He's alluding to the fact that for him, his real reward for all his labor, for all the work he's poured in uh, to the Corinthians and on their behalf, the real profit he hopes to make, the real return on his investment of time and energy, is that men and women would be one for Christ. That's the reward that he seeks that more people would come to know Jesus through his labors. And he's willing to be remarkably adaptable to accomplish that goal. He says that he'll be the servant of all, even though he is free from all. That is to say, Jesus is the master of his life, so he serves all, but the people he serves are not his master. Christ is his master, and he's their servant for Jesus' sake. It's an important way to understand this and fit it together. Alistair Begg once put it this way in speaking about pastors. He said, pastors are the servants of the congregation, but the congregation is not their master. Amen? I should get at least two amens out of that. You know, the... Uh, and that's what Paul's saying here, but he's saying it about all Christians. We're to be the servants of all people, but the world out there is not our master. Jesus is. Because if the world is our master, well then the world uh, would get to dictate our message and our methods. The world would set the agenda. The culture, with all of its uh, uh, opinions and preferences and morals and dictates, would drive the message and the method that we use. And some people have misunderstood this, some churches have misunderstood that, and they've actually allowed the world and the culture to do exactly that, to dictate the message and the methods. And that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying if we are but servants of the world, but mastered only by Jesus, then we should be flexible in how we serve our message and our method is determined not by the world, but by Christ. So there's this faithful flexibility, to borrow a term from somebody else. Um, but if you look down at the second half of verse 22, it's interesting. He changes the word as he talks about the goal that he has for his ministry. He's been talking about winning people. He's used the word a number of times. And then in verse 22, he changes the word so it helps us to understand what he means. It says, I become all things to all people that by all means I might, he doesn't say win some, but that I might save some. Here's what's at stake is Paul is very purposefully, carefully trying to persuade and convince and win people to Jesus. Here's what's at stake, not simply winning the argument, but to win people 
for Paul means through the proclamation of the gospel that salvation itself would break into their hearts and lives and that some might be saved. That means for us, we have no mandate simply to make more Presbyterians. Hard to believe, I know. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make Calvinists. Now, I'm a devoted Presbyterian and a convinced Calvinist. I believe that Reformed theology is the teaching of the Bible. But it's not to Presbyterianism or to Calvinism that we've been called to win people. We're not just about filling the membership roles of Potomac Hills, although I would love that. Love to receive new members. It's not our calling to make more people like us. That's not our main concern. If we don't adapt to our culture, if we don't contextualize ourselves, if we don't become all things to all people, then we are changing the gospel. We're becoming modern-day Judaizers, if not Mormons. We're telling people that they have to become just like us in order to be saved. And that's not biblical. We need to understand that to win others to Christ, we have to share the content of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And people aren't going to be converted just by watching us without hearing the good news of Christ, without hearing the actual gospel message of Jesus. And what Paul is telling us here is that we should remove all the cultural barriers that distract people <coughs> or offend those uh, other people. We don't want our outward appearance to be the issue. Or God forbid our political views to be the issue. We want the gospel to be the issue. And to do that, you don't have to be a clever salesman. And you don't need a hard sell. And you surely don't have to be condescending. Just tell people what Christ has done for you. How Christ has made a difference in your life. What Christ means to you now. How Christ has changed you. I mean, if you think about it, it's the first two membership questions. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? It's what I call the you can't save yourself question. And the second one is, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? The only Jesus can save me question. That's it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. It's not every aspect of the gospel, but that's sort of the core of it. And nowhere in there does it say that you have to become like us. 
Paul identified with the people he was trying to reach. He adapted his lifestyle to theirs and anything that would block them from hearing the gospel. He valued the gospel, as I said before, more than his own rights, more than his own comfort, more than his own culture. And if there's any offense in the gospel, he wanted it to be the offense of the cross of Christ, not the offense of becoming more like Paul, and surely not the offense of becoming more like Dave or becoming more like you. Our concern is to be the same as that which animated the Apostle Paul. We're to be about the work of bringing Christ to the people and the people to Christ. That's the calling that by all means we might save some. And Paul could stop there. And he goes back to the issue of giving up our rights and not being offensive in chapter 10. But at the end of this chapter, he adds in four short verses that seem completely out of place. And most preachers make these into a separate sermon. Uh, usually on not giving up, not quitting, persevering, having discipline in the Christian life, and all that stuff is good and true and all of that. Um, but I think most of them are wrong. <laughs> I don't think this passage is a separate issue that somehow got stuck here by accident. I think it's essential to the whole argument of chapters 8 through 10 about living for the sake of the gospel. Because Paul is about to admit that all the stuff I've just talked about, all the stuff Frank talked about last week, is really, really, really hard. And if you don't believe the gospel, there's no way you're going to live it. It will take real commitment, and it will take real discipline. And that's the how of the gospel. The how of the gospel, verse 24 to 27. Who, why, how? I put a lot of thought into that, coming up with those. Just think, it's, you know, the creative thing was really going. Um, it says... <laughs> Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul is using a sports illustration to make another point talks about a runner whose goal is to win the prize. He's not running just to enjoy the cool, crisp morning air. I drove here this morning. It was 14 degrees. I saw a runner. And, you know, I'm like, there's just some level of insanity going on here. I'm sure they're, like, committed and dedicated and disciplined and all the stuff that Paul just talked about. Yeah. <laughs> And if I was, like, really spiritual, I'd have prayed for them as I went by. Uh, but mostly I just thought they were nuts. You know, and they're not running, you know, just for health or to fight heart disease. The runner wants to win. She wants the prize. In verse 25, she wants the wreath. And Paul makes it clear that the wreath the athlete is pursuing is perishable. It's temporary. Like a championship ring or a trophy that 50 years from now you can go see in a museum somewhere. 
So while Paul admires the discipline of the athlete to pursue the prize, his point is we have a far greater prize than some perishable wreath or fancy trophy. Our goal is imperishable. It is eternal. So we as disciples, as followers of Jesus, should be all the more disciplined for the sake of the gospel. Now most people assume that he's talking about eternal life or being with Christ, as it's mentioned in Philippians 3, or maybe the crown of righteousness, which Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 4. I don't think so. Because what has he just been talking about? His reward is them. His reward is the Corinthians. His reward is seeing people come to Christ. His reward is to, verse 19, win more of them, verse 20, in order to win Jews, verse 21, win those outside the law, verse 22, that by all means I might save some, verse 23, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul is working, training, driving himself, disciplining himself, controlling himself, so that he can become as a Jew to the Jew, so that he can become as a Gentile to the Gentile, so he can become weak for the weak, that by all means I might save some. That takes practice in giving up your rights. That takes discipline in understanding the culture and the context and the people around you. That takes self-control in order to be your servants for Jesus' sake. Because it's wicked hard. Think about it. How many of your rights are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? Perhaps your right to live in a free country. Your right to privacy. Your right to have an extra bedroom. Your right to a safe neighborhood. Your right to not have to talk to that annoying person sitting on the other side of the auditorium this morning. Your right to not be uh, mad or your right to be mad at the person who offended you on Facebook. What rights are you willing to give up for the sake of the gospel? How are you altering your life in order to reach more people uh, with the gospel? Paul's willing to go to great lengths to change his life, to reach people with the gospel. What would that look like for you? I don't know, maybe it's volunteering at Tree of Life, or volunteering with the youth ministry, or doing setup, or cleaning the office. We're going to start planning for a mission trip this summer. I don't know where we're going, I don't know when we're going, but you need to pray about going now. How are you disciplining yourself for eternal things? What does that look like for you? Evangelism training? Reading an apologetics book? Seeking out an unbelieving friend to have coffee with? Inviting a co-worker to watch a football game with the men from the church next Sunday, 3 o'clock, at the Steins, Patriots-Jaguars. be a great game. <laughs> Got at least one amen out of that, you know. Maybe it's inviting your gay neighbor over for lunch. Friends, this is a beautiful chapter with a beautiful message. Paul is demonstrating giving up himself. He's demonstrating selflessness. He doesn't care about his rights. He doesn't care about his payment. He cares about the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Remember chapter 9 is sandwiched between chapters 8 and 10, which are both about food sacrificed to idols and not causing a weaker brother or sister to stumble. And it's worth it to give up your rights for the sake of your brothers and sisters. It's worth it to give up your rights to reach more people with the gospel. It's worth it because Jesus makes it worth it. After all, the Bible repeatedly exhorts us to consider him. One final motivation, consider our Savior himself. No one gave up more rights than he did. Hebrews 1 says, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power, and yet he came to earth as a human being. Hebrews 3 tells us, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Hebrews 4 says Jesus endured all the same trials and pain, making him able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in all the same ways we are. Listen to Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The gospel ultimately is about the one who gave up the glory of heaven and took on flesh and humbled himself and obediently went to the cross. That's the gospel. The gospel is about the one who is rich, who became poor. Just giving you language right out of the Bible. The one who is rich and he became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. That's the gospel. The gospel is about the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the gospel. What you're seeing in all of this is a picture of working for the sake of the gospel. It's about the one who sacrificed everything for what? For our good so that we could be brought into a right relationship with God. That's the gospel. And the gospel is transformative. It reshapes us. It makes us different people. And that's how Paul could become a Jew to the Jews, a Gentile to the Gentiles, and weak for the weak, because Jesus did it first. The main motive that animates our desire to please God ought to be the gratitude for all that he's done for us at the cross of Christ. He died that I might live. He obeyed that his righteousness might cover my unrighteousness. The wrath of God that I deserve has been met and paid in full in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. Praise God for the cross. Seeing all that Jesus has done should melt my heart, move me to love him, cause me to pursue his glory as I express my gratitude. Jesus himself is your motivation to become like them because he gave up so many of his rights to become like you. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, as always, we thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Father, we confess we often love ourselves in a way that allows us to justify our lack of love for others. As we confessed earlier, we don't often reach out to those who are different. And though we claim the name of Christ, our hearts turn elsewhere when different people come into our lives. It's not our habit and instinct to become more like them so that we can tell them about Jesus. So look for us as a church, we pray, in mercy. Forgive us. Work in these weeks and months ahead of us through 1 Corinthians. Strengthen us as we seek to live our lives for the sake of the gospel. And as we begin to be rewired by the gospel, would you make use of us, making us become more like the people in our community, more like the people in our workplace, more like our friends and neighbors, serving them, that by all means we might save some. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who became like us and who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.